But if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be studying verses 5 through 11 this morning. As most of you know by now, we started a new series out of the book of Nehemiah a couple weeks ago titled Building for the Future. And we're looking at Nehemiah as an example of the right man in the right place at the right time to do the work of the Lord. And, I, and I've been asking you, and I'm still asking you, will you be that person in, in your place and in this time that God has for you, in, the, in whatever place he has you, in your home, at your job, at your school, in this church, and at this time, the, the time is now. And we lear- learned last week that in order to be that right person, it has to start with a burden. But it can't just be any burden. And it, and it can't even just be your burden. It must be God's burden. And you must see the burden that God has for your family, for your friends, for this church, and then, then make it your own. And you do that by first seeking the Lord and getting specific direction from Him. You want to make sure you're doing things God's way and not get out in front of him. And that's exactly the pattern that we saw with Nehemiah last week. He asked his brother there in verse 3 about the state of Jerusalem and, and, and how the Jews were doing that had returned from the captivity. And he asked those questions because he knew that God cared about Jerusalem and, and that God cared about those Jews that were there. In fact, we saw this last week, God wanted someone to ask those questions according to Jeremiah 15.5. And we talked about how, how that is where seeing God's burden begins as you look up to him through his word and you allow the spirit of God to lead you as you walk in him. And as you do that, you begin to see things like God sees and the way he sees things. And so when Nehemiah got the report that things weren't good in Jerusalem, And he knew he had to do something. God was transferring his own burden to Nehemiah. And we we saw Nehemiah's reaction in verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1 that says, And it came to pass, when I heard these words, the the, the report that that Jerusalem wasn't well and that the Jews there weren't doing well, when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And he was saddened. By this news, and he he sought the Lord out in prayer. This is the the, the prayer that we're going to see today. This is, by the way, happens to be the first of 12 prayers found in the book of Nehemiah. And the the specifics of that prayer are are what we're going to see this morning in verses 5 through 11 as we finish out this chapter. And they're going to provide for us a model for praying in God's will. That's the title of today's message. And that's important because according to the Bible, when we pray according to God's will, God hears us and he answers those petitions. When we want what God wants after we've made God's burden our burden, and then we express that to him in prayer, there is power in that. And you see that in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, that say, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know that he hear us, and if, and if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. These are things that we can know. That's what the Bible says. So this prayer from Nehemiah provides a great template for us 
specifically as it relates to how God wants you to build for him in the various places and the various roles that you have in your life. Now listen, there are, are many prayers that you find in the Bible. If you've been a, a student of the Bible very long at all, you, you certainly know that. And there are many good, you know, template-type prayers and that you can use as patterns to pray. And, and, and obviously, we're not just repeating those same words, but there's, there's good things to see and good patterns to use in, in your prayers. And what you'll find is that, that many times you see similarities across these prayers, and, and we'll talk about some of those today. You have, for example, you know, what's known as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 11. Now, you know, it's actually better described as the Disciples' Prayer. Because it was what Jesus taught them when, when they asked him to teach them how to pray. It's, it's not a prayer that you ever see Jesus praying. And also, while we're talking about that, it, that's not even a prayer for us. And certainly not one to be prayed in some rote liturgical way like some churches teach. But you'll mess that up if you don't understand the context of Matthew particularly chapters 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, where that prayer is found. But if you do know the context, you'll know that 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 prayer is given to Old Testament Jewish disciples before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before the church age. But that doesn't mean we can't learn anything from it. Of course we can. Not all of the Bible is written to us, but all of the Bible is certainly written for us. And so you can learn some great practical tips on praying from that prayer. You just can't, we just can't apply them doctrinally to ourselves. You also see many good prayers in the Psalms that you can use as patterns. So, for example, there are what's called the penitential Psalms. Those are prayers of repentance. And you can find those. I put them on your outline sheet. There's seven of them. You can find them in Psalm 6, Psalm 32, 38, 51. 102, 130, and 143. Psalm 51, probably the most popular one, where David is repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. Paul has what are known as his prison prayers. Find those in Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 3, in Philippians chapter 1, and Colossians chapter 1. And so you have examples like this of, of, of certain prayers that, that we can look at and we can study and we can learn something from. And you see all these prayers in Scripture just obviously because of the high importance that God places on prayer. So it is important for us not only to pray, but to learn how we should pray. And what our prayer should look like if we want to hear back from God in our situation. So if you're in sin and you need to repent and you're not exactly sure how, go to those penitential prayers and see what those psalmists had to say. If you find yourself in bondage and you don't know what to do, go to Paul's prison prayers and see what he had to say. And if you need, need to know how to take God's burden and build for his glory in your home and in this church, you should go to Nehemiah and see what he had to say. And so lucky for you, that's exactly what we're going to do. That's, that's where we're at. And we're going we're gonna to see what he had to say. So let's look at it together and see what God has to teach us this morning about praying in his will in order to build. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And as Nehemiah sits down in his burden, this is what he prays. And said, I beseech thee, I beg thee, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, 
for the children of Israel thy servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee both I and my father's house of sin. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses saying if you transgress I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them Though there were of you cast out under the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper I pray thee, and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. All right, let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you so much for, for all that you have for us in your word, and, and we thank you so much that your word has every answer, even for stuff we're dealing with in our lives today. And so, Lord, as we look at, at this prayer today, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit teaches us how to pray and, and how we should think through those things. When we, when we want to hear from you and when we need to hear from you, Lord, we, there's some things that we can learn out of Nehemiah's prayer today. So, Lord, I pray that you teach us uh, as, as only you can. I pray that everything is said is true to your word, and then I pray that it's glorifying and it's honoring to you. Use it in all of our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so we have a great prayer here that gives us some clues, again, for praying in God's will. You actually see very similar prayers by Ezra in Ezra chapter 9 and by Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 9. Nehemiah's prayer, while a little bit shorter, is it lines up almost exactly with Daniel's. And we're not going to take the time to go through that. But if you're interested in that study, you should go look at Daniel's prayer. You'll find it in, in Daniel chapter 9. And where we start and where those other prayers that I just mentioned start is here. And this is kind of the, the, the first step. If you look to, to, to form a pattern for how we should pray in these times, here's the first step. Acknowledge God's worthiness. Acknowledge God's worthiness. You see, Nehemiah starts this prayer out by acknowledging the character and characteristics of God that make him worthy to be served, worthy to be prayed to. Look back at verse 5. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. And you know, this is different from our prayers sometimes. Because how many times when you pray, do you jump right to your problems? And you completely bypass who he is and you go straight to what you think you need. And listen, God wants us to tell him our needs. He wants us to tell him our desires, but you must know that he is not a genie in a bottle. He's the Lord God of heaven. That's what Nehemiah calls him. That means he rules from his throne. That means we are his subjects and we are his servants. We are to serve him, not the other way around. And I think sometimes in our own selfishness, we get that backwards. We might not know it consciously, we certainly wouldn't admit it, but that's how it plays out practically in our lives. And even if you look in the Lord's Prayer or that disciple's prayer that we talked about earlier, where does it start? Matthew 6, 9 says, after this manner, therefore pray ye, 
Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And like I said earlier, that prayer, while it may not apply to us doctrinally, there is still so much we can learn from it. Like how many of our prayers should probably start. Acknowledging him for who he is and for just how worthy he is. So, so let me ask you, just as we're getting started here, do you think he's worthy? Yes, he is. Oh, okay, well, if so, then you ought to tell him. You ought to tell him. And maybe you should even acknowledge him before you ask him to acknowledge you. Now, to be fair, not every prayer in the Bible starts out this way. Many of David's prayers just ask God to save him, kind of like Peter when he was drowning after walking on the water for a few steps there in Matthew chapter 14. And so I admit and concede that there are certain times where you just cry out to God, and that's... That's all you can do in the moment. But when we're talking about, uh, that, that's not most moments, by the way. And when we're talking about a scenario like Nehemiah's where you're seeking direction from the Lord, and how to build, how to lead your family, how to minister in the context of this church, situations that require patience before action, I believe this is where we need to start. Because you need an answer from the only one who can give it. And so acknowledge that in him. Now this title, Lord God of Heaven, is an interesting one. God has many titles throughout Scripture. This is one of them. It's an interesting one. It's one that, that Cyrus used for the Lord when he announced that the Jews could return to their land in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 23. It says, Thus saith Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of Heaven given me. And he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all his people. The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. You see this same title just a couple verses later. In Ezra chapter 1 verse 2, Ezra actually uses it a number of times throughout his book. Nehemiah uses it several times throughout this book as well. And it's important because of the history of Israel and their history of idolatry and spiritual adultery. Because what this title does is it differentiated Jehovah from all the other pagan gods that were just idols. They weren't in heaven. In Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10, David said, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. You see, he's above everything. He's God alone. And so we need to treat him as such. Because to what kind of God do we pray when we lift our prayers to the God of heaven? We pray to a great and terrible God and one that keepeth covenant and mercy. And I I want to look at those two adjectives that Nehemiah used to describe God. We don't have time to go through all of of these verses in in great detail, but 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 this is is worthy of discussion. Those two adjectives that I want to look at are great and terrible. And these are important to understand because these get to his worthiness. And when you understand his worthiness, It provides the right framework from which to build. 
So the first characteristic that Nehemiah outlines is that he is great. And when we're talking about the greatness of God, I, I, I want you to understand what it means. We're talking about his excellence and his mighty stature and his largeness. And, and you've got to stay with me here for the next few minutes because I, I want to explain something to you and, and, and for a very important reason because we've got to get to a very important point. And, and here's what you need to understand. The greatness of God is different than the goodness of God. You know, a lot of times in, in, in the way we use English language today, those words are kind of synonymous. And maybe great means a little bit more, but great and good have a similar meaning. Well, the greatness of God and the goodness of God in the Bible have different meanings, okay? So goodness gets to his nature. That describes his nature. So God is great. He is mighty. He is excellent. He is large. He is powerful. But he's also good. His, the, his nature, who he is, there's goodness in him. The Bible says as much. First Chronicles 16.34, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 119, verse 68, Thou art good, and doest good. Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. And those are just three of, of many verses throughout your Bible that say God is good. So, so like I said, God is great, but God is also good. That means not only is he big, he's kind. Not only is he mighty, he's merciful. Not only is he powerful, he's gracious. And when it comes to God's goodness, you have to understand that he's good all the time. And to all peoples, that's what we read, in all situations. But the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do I really believe that? Do you believe he's good even when quote-unquote bad things happen? Do you believe God is good even when life isn't turning out the way you had imagined or planned? And here is why this is so important and why you need to understand this point. Because if you want to have God's burden and you want to be the right man or the right woman for your family, for your friends, for this church, then you have to grasp God's greatness. But it, because if you don't understand that, if you don't understand God's greatness, then you will inevitably view him like he is another lowercase g God, like all those pagans worshipped in the Old Testament. That's how you will end up viewing him. And I know you're like, well, wait a second, I would... I would never view him like that. No, th this is why this title is important, the Lord God of heaven, to differentiate him. Because that's true. That statement I said is true whether you admit it or not or believe it or not. Because while you don't believe in the specific lowercase g gods that those Old Testament pagans did, you absolutely do believe in the God of self. We all believe in that God. Because we all have a flesh. So if you don't understand his greatness, his excellence, you will come to view yourself as just important or more important than him. And listen, your life will show it. For some of you, that's exactly what your life states. Paul told us that our life is an epistle that everyone gets to read. In 2 Corinthians 3, 2, ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. 
And some of your lives read that you consider yourself more important than God. And again, it's because you don't understand some things about God and who he is and how great he is. You don't stand in awe in him like Psalm 4.4 tells you to. So stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. But here is how God's greatness and God's goodness are tied together. You will end up missing, or you'll at least run the risk of missing God's greatness if you can't see his goodness. You see, if you don't understand or believe that God is really good to you, then why would you even care that he's great? You see, you need to decide to believe the, what the Bible says about God's goodness even when you don't think you can see it. Because you have to get to understanding his greatness. And so how, how do you do that? How do you believe when you can't see it? It's this simple. You trust. You choose to put your faith in God. You choose to believe the Bible and not your own feelings. I'm going to read you a quote from Corey Tinboom to illustrate this point. She said, I've often heard people say how good God is. We pray that it would not rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark and there was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy, he's not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Remember his word. And that just gives to trust and, and belief in, in God's word no matter what. There has to come a point in your life where you make that decision. That God's word is true even if you don't feel it. And that God is good even if, if things are seemingly bad. But once you get that goodness down, Understanding his greatness becomes easy. It will almost even come naturally. And when you fully comprehend his greatness, as, as least as much as your human brain can, and you realize that he left that greatness because of his goodness and came down and gave his life for you and me, that should blow you away. And should drive you to build for his glory. But not only is he great. Nehemiah said he's also terrible. And that word terrible literally means to be revered or feared. It doesn't mean awful or something along those lines. You can, you can see that clearly in verses like Psalm 66 verses 4 and 5. And I don't think we have that verse on your outline sheet and we don't have it on our PowerPoint. I just added it last night. But Psalm 66, verse 4 and 5 says, All the earth shall worship thee, and shall sing unto thee, and they shall sing to thy name. Selah, this is the, the, the context of this passage. Come, and we're singing to him, and we'll worship him. Verse 5, come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. That obviously doesn't mean he's awful or sinister. And, and this word and this concept, it's really an Old Testament concept of God. In fact, the word terrible is only found one time in the New Testament, not at all in connection to God. But what still holds true, even in the New Testament, even today, is our need to fear him. 
Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, 17 and 18 to honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. Paul talks about fearing God in multiple passages. For example, 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And in Romans 13, 7, he noted to render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And the Bible has a lot to say about the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. According to Psalm 111, verse 10, and Proverbs 9, 10, it is the beginning of wisdom. According to Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I think the best definition of this biblical fear is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. God had just given Moses the Ten Commandments. And then we read this in verse 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not. For God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. And this is interesting because it, it tells us that fearing God shouldn't necessarily make you afraid. Moses said, fear not. But instead, this godly fear should drive you to holiness. That this fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. But, but let me say... If you don't choose holiness, if you don't choose that route, then you do have reason to be afraid. Because listen to how Paul describes the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we're made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. And this is saying the same thing, right? Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, what do we do? We're, we're moved to holiness. We're moved to obey the Bible. We persuade men. But if you don't do that, you're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ ashamed. And that terror will, will, will bring a different feeling. And, and the study of fear is an interesting study in the Bible because what you see is that fear will either pull you away from God or it will draw you near him. And to pull away from him is sin. But, but to draw near is his great desire for us. And that's what fearing the Lord should do. It should draw you near to him to, in, in holiness and in, in, in living for him. And anything that draws you near to the Lord is a virtue that should be cultivated. And I, I, I've got to... I've got to keep moving. I've got to wrap this up and get to our other points. But let me explain how these two characteristics of God, how he is great and he is terrible, how they relate to each other, and then more importantly, how they relate to the worthiness of God. And, the, and again, this gets to our mindset. And this is why acknowledging his worthiness in your prayer is so important, because it sets the right mind. And here's how understanding these two concepts of him relate to this. And This is it. God's greatness 
gives you an understanding of who he is in light of you. Because he's so much more. He's so much more excellent. He's so big. He's so mighty. But God's terribleness, or, or the fear of God, that gives you an understanding of who you are in light of him. And both of those understandings should drive you to one and only one conclusion. He is worthy. He is worthy of it all. He is worthy of you being the right man or the right right woman for him. So acknowledge it. Acknowledge it in your life. Acknowledge it in your prayers. But after you acknowledge his worthiness... Then you can move to yourself, but, but not exactly how you think. You don't get to ask for anything yet. <laughs> because the second step in this pattern prayer is to accept the wrong. Accept the wrong. Remember the context of our series, building your home, this church, for God's glory and for the next generation. And if you find that something you are involved in is at any level in, in some shambles, then you need to accept the wrong. And this gets to taking responsibility and not blaming any, anyone else for the problems. And this is exactly what Nehemiah did. The situation in Jerusalem was nothing of his personal doing. Like, we talked about this last week. He had likely never been there. The idolatry and the spiritual adultery of Israel that led to their captivity happened before he was born. But look at Nehemiah's words in verses 6 and 7. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. And have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. And so you see those words that Nehemiah used there when he was confessing to God. We have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house. And he owned it even though it happened before he was even born. And that's a great lesson for us. Because any sort of change or revival, so to speak, starts with personal confession. So... So let me just tell you, you ought to make your pew today a confessional. And this platform an altar. And this auditorium a sacred space. And say, God, it's not anyone else's fault, it's me. And don't use your environment as an excuse. Don't use your upbringing as an excuse. Don't use past relationships as an excuse. Don't use anything as an excuse. Nehemiah didn't. If your life can be described as broken down in any area, just like those walls in Jerusalem, accept the wrong, own it, take responsibility, and then tell the Lord, I'm bringing me to you today. I have done wrong. I've messed up. I have missed the mark. I want you to make me over again. And just like David prayed in Psalm 51 verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within, the, within me. And don't sit there and, and look at me and think that you are exempt. Because the Apostle John tells you in 1 John 1.8 that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. 
The truth is, if you confess so that you can close those doors to, the, to those past things that, that took you there, then God will open the door to your present. And you could do the work to become the right man or the right woman today. And notice the intensity of his confession. Nehemiah wants God to open his own ears and eyes in order to hear his prayer. It's a very interesting request to open, open your eyes so you can hear me. But he just wanted all of God. That was his point. Everything. I want all of you. I want all of your attention. He was also praying day and night, he said. He admitted that Israel had done very corruptly by not obeying the Lord. But he made no excuses. And he fully owned his part in their collective sin. He looked at the grim record of Israel's past and knew that he wasn't exempt. And that gets to a certain level of spiritual maturity. So, so let me talk for a second to, to our mature Christians, our leaders, our, our growing Christians that are growing in spiritual maturity in here. Because I love you, I want you to know that you're part of the problem. It's not just them, it's you. And after hearing that, you will know that if you are mature or not, by whether you are offended by that statement or not. Because if you're immature, you can't handle that truth. When a kid gets caught or in trouble, it's never that kid's fault. I don't know if that's true of your kids, but it is certainly true of mine. I have a couple of them in here as we speak. And they even know it's true. Now, they'll want to argue that point because they didn't do anything wrong, but that's exactly my point. But when you grow up in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're willing to admit your shortcomings. And you're willing to admit that you need forgiveness, that you continually need the Lord's strength, and that you continually need his transformation in your life. And you need to continually have your mind renewed. And you need a greater reliance on an ungrieved Holy Spirit. And you understand Nehemiah's intensity because you understand the seriousness of sin. And, and this is also the difference in, in mature Christians versus immature Christians, is understanding what sin is and the seriousness of it. You see, sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules. It is an aggressive act of personal rebellion against a holy God. All sin is. Now, immature Christians don't see it that way. Just like your kids don't understand why they're getting in trouble when they didn't even really do anything. When they were going to obey, they just hadn't got to it yet. And listen, this is a problem in our churches today. Because too many preachers don't want to tell the truth about sin. And most Christians are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs today because the preachers sugarcoat everything. And they don't talk about the reality of hell and the devastation of sin. And church members don't want to hear about how they need to change. Well, I can't do that. I love you too much to let you off easy. And you need to recognize that all sin, no matter how small you think it is, is a defiant act of aggressive rebellion against a holy God. And it cannot be hid. Numbers 32, 23, but if ye will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. 
And the truth is, you cannot hide your sin. Because when you sin, the Holy Spirit is there. And since God already knows, you might as well go on and confess. And here's the thing about the Lord. When you approach life like that, you get to experience his wonderful compassion. Lamentations 3.22 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed, because his compassions fail not. Listen, that is true of every single one of us in here. Man, it, it is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. And we all are aggressive in our rebellion against the Lord at times. And this is why Nehemiah prayed the way he did in verse 5. He was appealing to God's consistent compassion. And, and again, that is true in your life, just as true as it is in mine as well. You messed up and God gave you mercy. You missed the mark and God showed grace. You did it again and God forgave you. And while we don't deserve it, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with God's grace because of his goodness. It should lead you to his greatness. It has to do with God being true to his word. Which brings us to our third step to praying in God's will. And that is to affirm God's word. And this is probably the key with respect to God answering your prayers. If you are praying God's word back to him, he will always be true to his word. That's exactly what Nehemiah does. Look at verse 8. Remember I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses. He's reminding God. You remember? Remember, God, what you told Moses? Remember the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If we transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Well, you did that. You kept up that part of the deal. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set thy name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. And Nehemiah was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64, and Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5. Kind of all of those chapters kind of talk about that. And he's saying, Lord, you kept your word in scattering us, but now you have to keep your word in regathering us when we repent. So Nehemiah was standing on God's promise, believing God's word. And listen, you know this. We have precious promises in this book and they're meant to sustain us but they only will if we hear them and listen to them there's nothing like this book and there's nothing like the promises of God and God is always good with his promises first kings eight fifty six. blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised there hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised the hand of Moses, his servant. And, and listen, he, he did. He kept all those promises to, to a rebellious, idolatrous nation. And he'll keep all his promises to you and me as well. He always will, but we have to do our part. Because, again, I, we've talked about this in the past. Most of God's promises have conditions on them. Just like the one Nehemiah was quoting, they had to repent. He said, if we turn... So I've told you this before, but I'm going to say it again. When we're talking about God's promises, this ain't no name it and claim it, bag it and tag it type of agreement. That's heresy. But he will not fail on his end. You can count on that. 
The problem with just taking all, many of the promises of God aren't for us, they're for Israel. So you have to know what promises God has for you. And then you have to live up to your end. You can't just say, see a promise in there and say, oh, that's mine. I don't have to do anything. It may not even be for me, but I'm going to claim that promise. That's not how it works. You have to know what promises are for you, and then you have to do your part of the condition. But that's what it always goes back to. It always goes back to that. Do you know what those promises are? Do you know the promises that you have from God? Because you cannot pray back to God promises that you don't know. So do the work to know his promises. Spend time in his word. And this gets back to where we started and in our intro and in our title. In 1 John 5.14, let me remind you. That verse says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And it's just this simple. His will is found in his word. Read his word. Ask in his will. And he always answers. So are you dependent upon God's promises? I mean, don't look for the government to pull you through. Stand on the promises of Christ your king. If God promised it, you can count on it as long as you do your part. So Nehemiah was depending on the promise of God. But he was also depending on the power of God. That's what he said in verse 10. And listen, if you need power, God is your source. Isaiah 40, verses 28 and 29 says, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? That the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends and the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. He never gets tired. There's no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. And this should come as no surprise. But you and I today, when we need power, guess where we receive it? Through his word. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the deciding sunder of soul and spirit, to the joints of marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That book is power. So affirm it. If you want power through your prayer life, get in God's word and pray God's word back to him. So don't just read through the Bible. Pray through the Bible. He will answer those prayers, and he'll give you the direction that you need, which brings us to the last step in our, in our pattern prayer, and that is ask God's way. What way does he want you to go? Finally, you get to ask God for something, but it's not something selfish. It's just for him to lead you. Look at verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. And Nehemiah was asking God to pave the way with the king. That, that's what's meant when he asked to be granted mercy in the sight of this man. This man was King Artaxerxes, and Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. So he had a responsibility to fulfill. And without the king's permission, he wasn't going to be able to go to Jerusalem. But I suspect that Nehemiah was also aware of what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21.1, which says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. So he was just asking God to pave the way. 
because he wanted to be involved in the mission. He was willing to work. That was his desire. I, I love that word that he used in verse, not, verse 11. Desire. So let me ask you, what is your desire? When it comes to your home and this church, do you desire to work for the Lord? Do you feel like Isaiah, who said these words in Isaiah 6, 8, very popular. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And said, I, here am I, send me. You see, neither Isaiah nor Nehemiah prayed for God to send someone else. Nor did they argue that they were ill-equipped for such a difficult task. They simply said, here am I, send me. And that should be your message to the Lord. Lord, since you need somebody, send me. If you want to save somebody, send me. If you want to disciple somebody, send me. If you want to reach somebody, send me. And when it comes to my home and my friends and this church, send me. Work in me so that you can work through me. Use your thoughts to renew my mind. Renew my mind to transform my life. Transform my life so that I can speak truth through my mouth. And speak truth with my mouth to edify others. And edify others to build up my home and your body. And build up my home and your body to Jesus' ultimate glory. Why don't you ask him to pave that way for you? I think he'll do it. Especially if, when you acknowledge his worthiness. And understand his greatness. And, and understand the fear of the Lord that should lead you to holiness. And when you accept the wrong. And, and when you look around you and you see things that, that aren't as they should be, and yet you blame someone else, no, accept the wrong. And then affirm his word. Get in his word. Know what promises that God has given you. And pray them back to him. Do your part in them and pray them back to him. And then ask him to pave the way. Because there's going to be some, some, some stumbling blocks along the way. There's going to be some people in the way. And ask him to clear the path. And that's how you pray. That's praying in God's will. And those prayers are successful. Those prayers move God to action. And then you get to follow his will and his way for his glory and the benefit of everyone around you. Let's start praying like that. And see what God will do in our lives and in our homes and in this church.